I'd saved up enough money to buy a Jeep, a Jeep CJ7. It was a, a soft top Jeep, a scarlet color with gold and brown stripes. It had a Pooh Bear on the spare tire cover on the back. We call it the Pooh Bear Mobile. It had dual headers on the exhaust, making it really loud. And it was manual transmission with a three-speed on the floor. Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. It had to carefully choreograph the clutch and the gas pedal and the, the three-speed there on the floor and work it. And it took me a couple of weeks to learn to drive the Jeep. And I, I loved it instantly and drove it into the ground several years later. And toward the end of college, I bought a brand new car, one that got better gas mileage, that was better for long road trips and probably my future when I would be moving out of state. It was an Oldsmobile. Do y'all know much about uh, Oldsmobiles? I feel like somebody laughed when I, uh, I told them I bought an Oldsmobile. Oldsmobiles were brought, General Motors brought Oldsmobile to the American public in 1897. I have a picture. Back then... There were only dirt roads. I guess you could say everybody was riding dirty. But <laughs> General Motors, uh, Oldsmobiles, as they introduced it, it became uh, moving from this time of growing exponentially, developing and all, evolving. It was really known as the innovative brand in America. In the 1920s, they debuted the chrome-plated trim, moving away from just the standard nickel. In the 30s, they introduced the first fully automatic transmission and V8. And then in the 1970s, Oldsmobile was the first one to offer airbags as an option. In the 80s was their zenith, their pinnacle, the height of their sales. They sold one to me in the 80s, and they sold on average 1.2 million cars per year. But in 1999, done. Death penalty. Closed down. It was it. The factories were closed. Oldsmobile, once known as the innovator in the automotive industry, was done. This morning as we begin a new five-week sermon series called Bad Ideas About God, we're going to present to you some, some of those very things, I think, some conceptions, perceptions, assumptions that lead to questions. And this morning, I want to present to you this idea of what we'll call Grandfather God. This idea that God maybe has passed his prime. Maybe he's out of touch. Maybe he's over the hill. Maybe he's outdated and overrated, you know, like Grandpa or an Oldsmobile. Any lingering thoughts among us to, to think that, you know, maybe God has passed his prime. There was a day when God was a tribal God in more primitive, ancient, superstitious, backwood cultures where that God worked. But in the modern world with technology and information, the globalization of the world in which we live, can God keep up with the modern times? Could this once innovative God, could he go the way of the Oldsmobile? Now, just show of hands or, or maybe nod. How many of you have a grandpa that he's alive or you, you love your granddad like it's when you say grandpa there's something good there right and let me be honest with you I've shared this with a few of you I never had a grandpa growing up never knew my grandfathers back in the day I remember hearing a song it was a country song on the radio it was a tribute to a grandfather it went like this I thought he walked on water anybody remember that I thought he walked on water <laughs> 
he would sit in the shade. Let's say uh, he wore starch white, starch white shirts, button at the neck. He would sit in the shade and watch the chickens peck. His teeth were gone, but what the heck? I thought he walked on water, and the story was told. Only heaven knows. But his hat seemed to me like an old halo. Some of y'all remember that? Yeah, I just like to sing. But I thought I would ride around and listen to Randy Travis and think, man, I want a granddad with teeth. <laughs> a good man, you know? But when you think of your grandfather, what comes to mind? Honestly, grandfather is somebody that we, you know, remember on special occasions. Or we see him from time to time or call him every now and then. Or maybe we have a picture of him around the house. A little bit of respect, a little bit of reverence. But, you know, he's past his prime. He's over the hill. He's outdated. He's overrated. That's grandpa. In Scripture, it can kind of mess with us a little bit because Scripture, do you know this? Scripture attaches value to old. In fact, the prophet Daniel of the Old Testament says that, refers to God as the ancient of days. Scripture says he's the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. He's the always and forever. He's always existed. He's uh, unchanging. That's how God is described. Old in Scripture can be a really good thing, but not old to us. Old is burdensome. Old is bothersome. Old, you send them off to wear black socks and play shuffleboard down in Palm Beach, right? That's old for us. But I think we can be victimized with this idea that God is somebody that we remember on special occasions. He's somebody that we talk to every now and then, maybe call when we need something. And he was good back then. He's helped us before. But with globalization and technology and information and this rapidly changing world, can he keep up? This morning I want to present to you a passage of scripture found in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, in verse 11 and 12. A passage to speak into this misconception, this misnomer, this faulty image of God being grandfather. It says, they will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you, God, you are the same, and your years will have no end. If we're not fortified with good ideas, we'll be victimized by bad ones. And it's nowhere more important than this area of God. In fact, the 930 service, I told them what I want to tell you now is this series really in large part was motivated by a book by J.B. Phillips called Your God is Too Small. It's a small paperback. I'd love for you to, to look into that, to read it. Your God is Too Small by J.B. Phillips. And this idea of grandfather God, that just someone that's distant powerless for the large part, who's past his prime. Hebrews addresses how we could be victimized by this. And he says, be fortified with this, that the Alpha and Omega, the one who is the always and forever, the unchanging God, this is him, he's the rock. And you know, we need this. We need this because of the change all around us. I went to a football game last night, visited the campus that I graduated from, and just looked around at all the changes. I saw people that I went to school with, and I noticed how much they've changed. Not me so much, but them. Just There's a lot of changes. You know, countries change. 
In my younger days, I remember a nation called the Soviet Union. doesn't exist anymore. Two consecutive summers, I lived in Central Europe in a country called Yugoslavia. doesn't exist anymore. It's called Croatia. Countries change. Technology changes. Jobs change. The U.S. Department of Labor estimates that today's college graduate, by the time they're 38 years of age, that they will have held down 14 different jobs. Gone are the days when you aspired to work for one company and serve there for 50 years and get a pension and a gold watch, right? Those days are over. Countries change. Technology changes. Jobs change. Our bodies change. The number of hairs on your head, the number of wrinkles in your skin, the number of cells in your brain. We deny it. We try to defy it. We try to, we try to change it all. But our bodies change. We live in a world of change. This week, at the beginning of the week, in preparation for today, I was reading a USA Today article that talked about the last 30 years, the 15, just all the changes of the last 30 years, the 15 years prior to 9-11 and these 15 years after. And they went through a litany of things, like uh, how we're, as, an, as Americans, we're going green. We have hybrid cars and curbside recycling and wind and solar power. And we have uh, bitter battles politically over um, re resources and uh, nuclear waste and such, uh, energy drilling and all of this. We're, we're going green. It talked about one of the significant changes is the breakdown of the nuclear family. It said no more Ozzy and Harriet. No more, uh, we've, we're seeing now in America the demise of the family dinner table, of uh, the breakdown of that, the, the, the insurgence of the non-nuclear family. It talked about all the fads that that we've gone through the last 30 years in terms of diet and exercise. South Beach and Atkins and Weight Watchers and Nutrisystem and Bowflex and Tybo and Body by Jake and uh, you know, dancing with Jane Fonda and, or dancing to the oldies, aerobicizing with Jane Fonda and dancing to the oldies with Richard Simmons and the Norda Track and the Brazilian butt thing and all those, you know, just the changes with exercise and diet. And it talked about the change in America with fear. America's most wanted and amber alerts and going to airports and being x-rayed and now these 15 years having to take our shoes off and having color-coded terror threats and the rise of anxiety that we have as Americans with Adderall and Ritalin and Prozac and all these variety of ever-burgeoning drugs and pharmaceuticals on the market. It talked about the growing sexualization of our culture, of wardrobe malfunctions and online pornography, girls gone wild and Viagra ads on television, uh, our desire to alter the way we look with cosmetics and implants and Botox, teeth whitenings and such, just the radical changes in all these areas, the changes with gambling, the numbers are staggering with state lottos and casinos and racetracks and slot machines. There's just been a lot of changes in the last 30 years, a lot post 9-11. With countries and technology and jobs and our bodies and all the cultural trends and fads and all the changes, it can leave you dizzy, can it? Maybe today some of you are going through or trying to endure a change. You're trying to make sense of something that's changing around you. And what do you and I need? I think it's why we're here. Why maybe, even though there's people writing books about the nuns, N-O-E-S's, people that are leaving churches, I think it's why we might have job security around here, why we might have pews and stained glass, and why we may gather. 
Because in the midst of all that's changing, we're looking, you and I, we're looking for something that doesn't change. We're looking for something that's unchanging. That's what you do. If you're dizzy, what do you need? You need a fixed point. You need a place of reference where you can say there. In the midst of the imbalance and the disequilibrium, you need something fixed. In fact, in Hebrews, we, we read verse 1, verses 11 and 12, but later in Hebrews chapter 6, 19, it refers to God, this unchanging God, this God who will one day roll up, fold like a garment. He'll be the roller upper. He'll be the folder. He's the one who doesn't change. But it describes him as an anchor for the soul. Many times over, I discovered this week in reading scripture, I discovered how often it talks about us being driven and tossed by the winds, about being uh, just living in a restless sea, a sea that's churning and that's changing. And guys, we're affected. I think it's why the writer of Hebrews in his wisdom says, an anchor for the soul. The God who doesn't change can be for you and I a fixed point. He can be an anchor for the soul, the deepest part of who you are, your deepest needs. God can be that. Later in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8, Jesus is described, it says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. You and I, we change. But God doesn't. There's no fear of the ancient of days becoming an irrelevant grandfather who's past his prime. This God wants to be the anchor for your soul. This God wants to be ever present and ever engaging in your life. What doesn't change about God? And I want to put the passage that we read in a little bit of context. If you read Hebrews, the first part, it starts talking about Jesus. The whole book of Hebrews is about Jesus being greater. And it describes Christ, and it says that he's the radiance of God's glory. This is Hebrews 1.3, if you want to look at it. It, it, says, it says Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the Father's glory. That he's the imprint of the Father, of his image. And that, listen, that he upholds, didn't just create, stay with me, he upholds creation by the power of his word. Question, how many stars are in our solar system? None of you know, I'm going to tell you. One. You're like, no, no, pastor, you're wrong and I'm not coming back to this church. Listen, let me save you some time, or at least now. You're going to Google it later, right? But we have one star in our solar system. And if we had more than one star, there would be like this sort of this tidal wave that would, that would just wipe the earth out. It would, be, it would be totally off the axis. If we didn't have this star, we would just be frozen tundra. And not only does this one star allow for actual human life in a solar system, it's the correct size. If it was any larger, the luminosity effect would, uh, would not allow for life. If it was any smaller, there would not be enough ultraviolet, ultraviolet radiation for plant or animal life. Not only do we have one star which is needed, you can't have, you can't have a not star. By the way, you understand the stars that... Massive plasma ball that's 93, mi 93 million miles away. That's what we're talking about here. And not only is it one that's needed, but it's the correct size. And not only is it the correct size, it's the right age. 
If it was younger, it would be mercurial and just it couldn't lend itself to life. If, if it was older, um, it couldn't lend itself to life. Not only is there one star which is needed, not only is it uh, you know, the right distance and correct, si- well, um, correct size, it's the right distance away. If it was any further away, it'd be too cool and it wouldn't permit uh, stable water evaporation. If it was any closer, it'd be too warm, too hot. In fact, it'd be really hot and it wouldn't permit stable water evaporation. One star. How many do we need for life? One. Gotta have one. Can you have more than one? No. And that one star, 93 million miles away, that burning ball of plasma is the correct size, the right age, and the precise distance away. Can I quote to you one more time Hebrews 1.3? It says that he upholds creation by the power of his word. The earth's rotation, the ratio of nitrogen to oxygen, the tilt of the axis, the way we revolve around the planet, everything is in perfect harmony and everything is just right to allow you and I to live and move and have our being and see Alabama play Ole Miss next Saturday. All of that is made possible because he upholds creation by the power of his word. This great God, his power doesn't diminish. Nobody, I bet, took time today to thank God for the tilt and the rotation of the earth on its axis or the trip today around the sun. But God is not a grandfather God. And though he's the Alpha and Omega, the always and forever, although he's the ancient of days, he's not wearing out. He's not becoming irrelevant, out of date, and over the hill. He's not past his prime. We see the unchanging character or unchangingness of God in creation, and we see it in his character. We see it in his character, the radiance of of God. Radiance is that word light. What was the first element of creation? Light. God said, let there be light. He spoke it into being. And here's the thing, even though it's a physical manifestation, thank God for light. It's beautiful. Sometimes I come in here at various parts of the day and I sit somewhere in this sanctuary and I pray and I see light hitting these stained glass. And it's beautiful. God, thank you for light. And when Jesus talks to us about being the radiation of God's glory. He's saying, let there be light. Know him as the light and let life come into your life. His character doesn't change. His holiness. We read Hebrews 1, 11 to 12, but if you read the next couple of verses ahead of that 9 and 10, it talks about wickedness and righteousness. And you know that doesn't change with God. He hates what is wicked. And he loves what is righteous. And he wants you and I. He gives us an invitation to walk in the light, to step into the light, the radiance, to to value his character. And then to pattern our character, to let him mold us, to be conformed to the image of the Son, as it says in Romans 18, the Son, Jesus the Son. And to walk in this truth, in this life. God's character, it doesn't change. This week, late Wednesday afternoon, I was upstairs, third floor in my office, a lot of windows, and I was, I was with a man who really wanted to see me. Nine months ago, I was at the hospital with his parents, and we were looking over his bed, and he was comatose. And we were praying for him. We were praying that God would save his life. So he's with me this week. 
We rejoice and we're talking about God's goodness, about God saving his life. And as we're talking, my phone is just going off right next to me. You know, we all struggle badly with this. But my phone is there, and I'm just like, man, this is really important. Like, this is a God-ordained appointment. This is a man I prayed for, and I'm, I'm his pastor, and I really need to be all in. I need to square up my shoulders, look him in the eyes, and care, and be with him, right? And not look at my phone. I couldn't help it because my phone was being lit up. And as my phone's being lit up, there's a helicopter flying out of my window right here. I'm like, this is not a, these aren't standard, I'm not that popular, right? And this, this is not a hospital helicopter. This is, this is an active manhunt. And the helicopter, I look out of that window, look down, and I see that the helicopter's flying right over my house, right through those green trees, seven-tenths of a mile away. The helicopter's right there. And I'm thinking of my wife and my kids. Lord, you know, you called us here. Six years ago, I prayed this prayer that we'd move to Jackson, that you would keep us safe, that we'd be a testimony that Jackson's a good city, and that we'd pray and work for its peace and prosperity. We have an active manhunt. Susan and the kids and the dog are at home. My oldest son, the one who's driving, couldn't get home because the police barricade, and they're out looking. Were you aware of this? Late Wednesday afternoon. And somebody really was driving dirty. They jump out of a Jaguar down the bridge here on Frontage Road, and the police, after a couple of hours of searching, they, they apprehend this man. He was in a Jaguar. He fled on foot, left a woman in the car with drugs and such, and they caught him. Body slammed him to the ground, put handcuffs on him to take him away. The news media, of course, was there. They covered it. Not only did they cover the criminal and the pursuit, the apprehension, they, they, they put my wife on the news. Did anybody see that? She was like that person out front, you know, and WJTV. You can look at it online later, but there's Susan Green on the television news. We were so proud of Susan, so worried about what she would say. <laughs> What did she say, guys? Do you remember? We've been quoting it all week. She said, you know, I've got three kids. I heard the helicopter. I realized there was a manhunt. We're just dealing with the situation. When you live in Jackson, you've got to deal with the situation. So we've been making fun of her all week about dealing with the situation. We were out of town last night. We went to the game, all of us. We're, we're texting her, hey, you good? You good in Jackson? You dealing with the situation? Everything's good? Got the, everything good? But she looked good. She looked good on TV. But look. There's wickedness. No matter how advanced and educated, no matter how intelligent we become as a society, no matter how we progress and evolve, there's still sin locked up in our hearts. To that criminal, Paul said long ago in Ephesians 4, do not steal. Steal no more, but rather let a man, he shouldn't steal, but a man should labor with his own hands so that he can provide and he can give to those who have need. But what do we do? We think God's character changes, or we think God's character doesn't apply to us, or we think righteousness doesn't matter, and we take shortcuts. It's not just criminals on the street jumping bridges and being apprehended by the police. It's you, and it's me. And we look for shortcuts, and we look for ways to hide in the dark. God's character doesn't change. And we sin, and we let each other down, and we hide, and we have shadows of turning, but God doesn't. I want to read to you an email that I got last spring, this past spring. And I want to keep it in confidence. There's an anonymity to this, so it'll affect the way that I read the email. Dear Pastor, my name is, 
I'm going to transfer this school in Jackson. I'm about to graduate this May. I've wanted to approach you in person at church for a while, but I also was afraid I would completely break down in tears if I expressed to you what I'm about to. You see, when I chose this school in Jackson, I didn't choose it because I thought I fit here because this school was where I wanted to be the most. I'm a dance major. My goal is Broadway, and I grew up singing and dancing and acting. I always dreamt of being in New York. When college was rounding the corner for me, I was in a situation that I didn't know how to get out of. This will be heavy. I was being abused by my youth pastor. Wow. I haven't heard myself say that enough. This is why I was afraid to approach you, the tears, the memories. The school I wanted to go to was the school my abuser graduated from. At that point in time, I felt that if I went anywhere close to home, he would find me. He would manipulate me, take advantage of me, confuse me, make me believe wrong things about God, so many lies I needed to get away. The hard part through that experience was that my dad is the associate pastor of the church. It was important that I attended services and youth events because I was the pastor's kid. At least that's what my abuser told me. I was constantly pressured to be so perfect and have myself put together and be a leader when all I craved was to be a student, to be fed truth that I was so dehydrated and deprived of for those years. My parents knew I didn't enjoy church and gave me permission to go to a church I felt comfortable with. They began to see unhealthy qualities in the youth leader and gave me permission to stop attending for my safety, not realizing just how bad it was. They just felt uncomfortable and didn't want to see me so upset. Since my first year in youth group in sixth grade until now when I left for college in Jackson, I'd gone through five different youth pastors. I was tired of transitions and the loss of confidentiality. I was tired of lack of spiritual maturity and leaders I thought were looking out for me. As you can probably put the pieces together, you'll see the last leader I had was icing on the cake to, to the decision to run away. So that's what I did. I told my parents I wanted to go to Jackson to college. They supported me. I told them I needed to go somewhere that nobody knew me. I wanted to start over. I wanted to get away from the abuse. I came here not knowing or knowing that I wouldn't know anyone and nobody knew me or my history or that I, that I was so ashamed of. They had no idea I was a pastor's kid or abused. The first Sunday I was here in Jackson, I came with my RA in September of 2014. I was hesitant to come because church didn't bring good memories, but there I was, white dress, makeup, mask tightly strung around my ears. I glued myself together just like I'd done back home when, excuse me for a second, just like I'd done when I was back home. It had to be the very first song in worship. Oh, I tried so hard to keep it together. The tears were coming. I made it through, but then the second song, there it was, those words. I can't even remember the song, but I remember the backdrop was a starry sky behind the lyrics. The lyrics were then blurred out by the tears, welding up. I was home, I was safe, I was so guarded, I wouldn't let myself worship because vulnerability was an open door to let my abuser in. Worshiping and being open in church was the key to allowing him to swoop in and control my spiritual journey and my emotions. I stood there on the left side toward the back on the end of the pew. You spoke that day out of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. There have been days when I haven't attended where I have been bitter and couldn't stand the thought of church. In February of 2015, back home, other youth members spoke out about their abuse. My parents asked if I would share. It was time, my time to speak up. As it turned out, my assumptions of, of abuse were true. Counseling ensued. I apologize for the length of this letter, but I needed to let you know with full knowledge why I had to thank you. This became a safe haven. Fondred Church became my safe house. 
My major became my full outlet. Nightmares rage, but my abuser never found me. Now I still wrestle with God, but I know the truth. I've taken these last two years to rewrite the story, to reopen the wounds and scrape out the lies that were festering and growing roots into my bones. I've taken the time to clean my wounds with the truth of Christ Jesus. Pastor, your church, the worship and the teaching have played a larger role in my healing than you'll ever know. And in large capitals, I can worship in church again. I'm safe. I can't explain what that feels like to me. To, be, to feel safe in church is the most incredible feeling, the most freeing feeling I've experienced. My journey through healing is not over. I'm prayerfully anticipating graduation and moving back home. But my abuser is not there at that church anymore. The memories are. I hope that one day I'm able to walk through those doors again and feel safe. I think I'm closer to being able to now. Thank you and the leadership of Fondren for building a safe house, for teaching and speaking the truth, having a passion for the congregation. I will miss Fondren. I know we'll be back when I visit and hope to meet you and Susan in person. The radiance, the radiance of God's glory, letting the light of the truth of Jesus and his unchanging character shine into us, into our soul, into the deepest part of us, into what we're hiding, into where we're cunning and calculating, where we're worrying and fretting, walking into the truth of God's unchanging character. We see it in creation. We see it in who he is, in the person of Jesus. And the call to walk in his light. And we do live in a world where there is wickedness. We do live in a world where there is righteousness. And I'm praying. I'm praying that over these weeks we can not be so victimized by bad thoughts about God. But to be fortified by his truth. That he is the lover of your soul. That he is the one who will have the final word. That he is the one who says, follow after me and my character. It is perfect. It is righteous. And all that's going on, all the rage around you and all the change. You need it. You need this radiance. You need this anchor. Pray with me.